Hey, what's up guys, Travis here. And if you've been following me or my story for any length of time, you know that I started a company called Guestio about a year and a half ago now. And one of the things that we are doing this year in 2022 is we're building a concierge program called the Fast Pass that allows you to get booked on top quality shows and platforms for the purpose of spreading awareness for your brand, grabbing attention, uh, growing your credibility, your authority, et cetera, et cetera. And so if you are listening to this right now and you are a seven figure plus entrepreneur and you have a budget to bring in traffic, attention, credibility, authority to your brand, then this might be a really great program for you. Just head over to travischapel.com slash 10K. Why 10K? Because we guarantee in this program that you're going to be able to speak in front of 10,000 people within 90 days. Okay, 10,000 people within 90 days. Imagine getting on a stage in front of 10,000 people to share your message, your story. That's exactly what we are doing inside of this program through virtual stages like podcasts or virtual events or YouTube channels or blogs. You name it, we are working with it, and we are trying to get you booked on those platforms. So travischapel.com slash 10x. There's a quick application there, and then right at the end of that application, it'll prompt you to set up a phone call where you'll jump on a call with me, and we'll talk through whether or not you're a great fit for this program. Please act fast on this. Do not wait because we are only taking on one or two clients a week due to uh, constraints with our team and the limited supply of high quality shows and platforms that are out there in the market. So if that's you and you're really wanting to explode your brand in 2022, head over to travischapel.com slash 10K, fill out the application, schedule a quick phone call, and you and I will chat really soon about whether or not this would be a great fit for you. Thanks guys. Talk to you soon. Hi, I'm Emily Chang, CEO from Macan World Group China. And if you want to build meaningful relationships, you should be listening to Build Your Network with my good friends, Travis Chapel and Eric Skorzynski. If you're tired of the old way of networking, the business cards, the awkward conversations, and the aggressive pitches, but you know how crucial your network is to your success in life, then you're in the right place. Welcome to Build Your Network, the only top-rated show committed to helping you master content networking, foster real relationships, increase your authority, and build the network of your dreams. Listen in on conversations with world-class entrepreneurs, authors, thought leaders, and more as we deconstruct their best strategies for your success. So get ready to burn your business cards, ditch the name tag, and discover the new way to network with your host, Travis Chappell. All right, Emily, thank you so much for joining me on the Bilge Network podcast. It's great to have you on today. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. We'd love to take these conversations really back to the beginning and get to know uh, our guests a little bit. So tell me a little bit about your childhood. Tell me about middle school, Emily. What was going on? What was kind of your personality at that age? I love that you picked middle school of all things. Great. <laughs> I think it's an interesting time. My daughter's now in middle school and it brings you back when you suddenly parent a middle schooler, because that's the time I think you're still a kid. You're not quite an adult. You really want to be, and you're trying to figure out your identity. Right. So for me in middle school, I was, I'd say first and foremost, the daughter of immigrant parents hmm. who had moved into the country didn't speak great English and didn't really understand the culture. They didn't understand the school system or the social networks in which I found myself every day. So I'd say the, you know, sort of the first thing as a result of being a daughter of immigrants is 
everything was about relationships. It was about trying to bridge and trying to understand the context mm. in which I found myself. So I loved music and sort of the music world. And then I loved sports and the sports world were incredibly different. The language we used to relate to each other, what success looked like. Then of course there was academics. And then there was my home life, which was very Chinese and sort of like a different universe to everything else at school. <laughs> Right, right. Was there a lot of pressure, you know, obviously being first generation, like your, your parents are coming in, they're, they're working to really provide for you in, in a lot of these stories, you know, like they're, they're trying to get you to be able to have all these opportunities and experiences. Like, did you feel a lot of pressure and weight on your shoulders to go a certain direction or to pursue a certain, a certain path? Huge pressure. I'd say in looking back, the pressure was bigger than I understood as a child, which is your parents have given up everything to try and find a better life for you. So my God, that's enormous. But, uh, but thankfully, I don't think most kids actually realize that. <laughs> the pressure was probably more um, the desire, the very strong desire of my parents to get perfect grades for me to excel. And, and the other pressure I'd say is them not understanding the social construct of school. Mm -hmm. and, and sort of um, having one set of expectations based on how they went to school in Asia versus the way school operated in the United States. I think that was a unique kind of pressure because it wasn't synchronistic. So the advice you're getting, the things you're being pushed to do are really different than the world you find yourself in every day. And it's different kind of sort of maybe a tension more than a pressure. Right, right. What would you say was kind of your personality like growing up? I mean, you're you're obviously you have this pressure. You're not really feeling the full weight of it. Thank goodness. But, uh, you know, when you're kind of sitting down there, you're thinking about what I want to be when I grew up, when I'm thinking about what these opportunities are, what was kind of on your mind? What were you hoping to accomplish? I always wanted to be a pediatric oncologist. Okay. I, I think uh, in a somewhat cliche way, as a Chinese American girl growing up, it was like doctor, lawyer or engineer. And I thought doctor sounded great. So I can't say it was chosen for me. I very much was interested in medicine. I loved science, biology, physics, chemistry, all of it. So I was in I was in a, an experience where a group of students and I came together and we created this sort of nonprofit opportunity to practice our music skills and then go try and, you know, make somebody stay a little bit better with it. So we were performing at a children's hospital. And even then, I think I was interested in always trying to do other things. So even back then, I think I was interested in constantly building connections with people and seeing where I could add value with what I had to offer, which, you know, was pretty little in, in yeah. middle and high school. But we created this little group called Gratis and we were at a children's hospital performing. Mm -hmm. And I just saw a patient being treated in a not very warm and compassionate way. And it really struck me because you could tell, you know, she'd lost all her hair and she, she had probably been going through chemotherapy. And I remember thinking in that moment, I was in seventh grade, I remember thinking, that's what I'm going to do. And I think I'm going to do it better than that doctor just did it. And that became sort of my whole trajectory, which was, I'm going to go be a doctor. I'm going to help little kids who are sick. Yeah, that's fascinating because I know so much of your story now has been really reaching out and caring for a lot of animals, uh, caring for a lot of a lot of animals. I was reading it. I was like, did I read that right? Like how many pets are there? But also just caring for people, like taking care of initiatives to really make sure people are taken care of. And uh, it's amazing that that was there. And that's why I like going back to middle school and going back to those early years is because yeah. so much of what we are now seems to be in service of our 
childhood self, you know, like what were the things that we saw that impacted us in a big way? And uh, that's a really interesting perspective to hear. I think that's true. And I guess maybe an observation is what drove you and what fueled you back then will probably ongoing be your passion, but it doesn't necessarily have to be your career. So I think I went down the route of, I'm going to go do that for my job because I'm really interested in it and I really care about it. But it turns out I also don't have the emotional distance to do that job very well. And thankfully, I learned it early. But you're right. It has sort of persevered as a passion in my life. And there are lots of ways that we can serve that, those passions without it necessarily being our day job, so to speak. Right. Well, let's let's talk about your day job because you have had so many of what I, I would say are dream jobs or dream positions for for anybody to to work at any of the companies that is in your resume would be like a lifetime achievement for so many people. What first pushed you in the direction of marketing? What what, what was the first thing that kind of piqued your interest in that in that world? Absolutely nothing. It was a woman. Hmm. So I was from go, going from science into an MBA. I didn't really know what I want to do. I just knew I probably didn't have the emotional distance to be the doctor. So I thought, well, let me go get an MBA because I was enrolled in an MD MBA school. I had no idea about business. I had no idea what people did carrying briefcases, walking in and out of buildings every day. But I thought, well, finance seems like, you know, I'm kind of good at math. So maybe, maybe I'll do finance. (laughs) And I didn't even really know the difference between finance and math. It seemed like very numbers driven. And then I was recruited by Procter and Gamble who came on campus because we were a really strong finance school. And there's a wonderful woman named Paris Watts Stanfield who was interning, who was, who was interviewing for a finance internship. And as we were talking, she said, you know, your personality, your curiosity, you you make me wonder if brand management would be better. And in my typically unfiltered way, I said, oh, what's brand management? (laughs) So so that's what happened. And I would say, you know, Procter & Gamble is really renowned for marketing, but there is a distinction as well between sort of a pure marketing function and brand management. And I feel incredibly lucky to for Paris to have said what she said, to have leaned into me and to have met her because brand management is absolutely grounded in marketing. It also is honing people to be future general managers. And it turns out that really is the core of what I love to do and maybe what I'm pretty good at in the workplace. So it was really because of Paris who observed me over at a one hour interview, made a side comment. And that's how I got my internship in, in brand management at Procter & Gamble in the late nineties. Wow. Wow. So really that position is beyond just the advertising. It's the culture, it's the company culture. And that's what it looks like you were so vital to in so many of these different companies. And, um, yeah, that's that's really funny that you were so unfiltered to to just say, you know, what is that? You know, instead of the fake it till you make it, you know, story, which oh, yeah. you know is, is really interesting. And it's it's really neat that she saw that in you in that one hour and and invested so much. Um, what was what was kind of the first experience like diving into that in the '90s, getting involved in it? This is something that you really are learning for the first time. You know, this was a major pivot, uh, about as major as you can possibly get. How did you kind of start, you know, like, where do you get started in this brand new world, trying to learn it while also trying to execute your job the right way? It's, it's like one minute at a time, Travis. I, you know, it's interesting. You went started in seventh grade. I'll go back to that. I think because there's so much I didn't understand contextually, there's so many things that I could tell there was subtext, but I didn't know what it was. I just learned to ask. And I think early on, I was exposed to the difference between learning and failure. 
you could, you could probably say my middle school years were a massive failure because there's so many things I didn't understand. I was asking questions constantly, or the way I looked at it is I was learning constantly. Maybe some people thought I was naive. Maybe some people thought I asked stupid questions, but I learned a lot. And I don't really mind so much what people think, because if I can learn something and then if I can turn around and leverage what I've learned to benefit someone else, I would consider that success. So when I joined PNG, I didn't know the first thing. I'd never been to Cincinnati, <laughs> Ohio. I'd never um, done anything that I was doing. And, you know, I kind of coined this phrase just a few years ago called novicehood, hmm. because I think it's something I really enjoy. I like not knowing things because I don't mind asking questions. I don't mind being on a steep learning curve. I don't mind that sense of discomfort. I think it keeps us humble. It keeps us hungry. And I think it keeps us as we grow older, relatable to the more junior people who we're responsible for, because we remember what it feels like to not know. Right. And so, yeah, when I joined PNG, I didn't know anything. And I asked questions all the time. And there were times that people were giving me very good, intelligent answers. And I still didn't understand. I'm going to be honest. And, and then you just, it's not fake it till you make it. You just work really hard to try and understand what problem you're put here to solve. <laughs> right, right. And sometimes it is, it's really valuable to be able to go into a situation and have those fresh eyes too. And that's why I think the people that go the fake it till you make it route really miss out because you get an opportunity to ask questions that maybe the people around you need to hear asked again. Maybe they can hear something that's going to make them think about something in a new direction. And so I think a lot of people do a disservice to themselves and the company they work for by doing that, like, oh, I'll pretend I know everything and figure it out as I go along, uh, which sometimes can work out. There's some crazy success stories that work that way. But more often than not, I think the route of just being a great learner is going to take you a lot further uh, down the road. And I'd say, especially in the first three to six months, nobody's, I think this is something I wish I told my younger self, right? Nobody's expecting you to know it all. Like, you know, I was at PG. one of my first projects was to analyze a TPR. And I remember thinking, I was like, so what's a TPR? <laughs> and it turned out there was somebody who'd been there for a year and didn't know what a TPR was. It's a temporary mm -hmm. price reduction. They knew the concept, which is some sort of price, but they didn't know what the acronym stood for. So why not ask in the beginning? Because yeah. those are the moments when people don't think, wow, there's something wrong with her. They're thinking, oh, yeah, of course she doesn't know that acronym. Now, six months, one year later, if I'm like, what's a TPR? Maybe they're going to wonder. <laughs> Have you say, you why did you ask? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So I ask as much as I can up front. But I also, I've also found as I get more senior in organizations, I need to couch those questions uh, a little bit more. I'm not challenging because questions are often very thin shrouds for challenges. I'm truly asking because I don't know the answer. And I think it's become more and more important for me to start with that, which is I have a question. It's truly a question <laughs> because I don't understand the context. Can you help me understand X, Y, Z? Right, right. This episode of the show is brought to you by Indeed. We are driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate is not to search at all. It's to match and match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need this platform, guys. I'm telling you, Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging candidates so you can connect with those people even faster. And it doesn't just help you hire faster. In fact, 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed 
survey. And look, guys, one of the things that I wish I would have used Indeed for is this matching service. You can search and search and search and search and search all day long, but to actually be presented with quality candidates, like 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 hiring a a recruiter for you that's presenting people that has actually done the work to vet them and uh, bring quality people in front of you, that work by itself is the fact that it's done by a software instead of like a team of high quality recruiters is is pretty insane. So they leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day, which is why Indeed's matching engine is the best one that you can use. It's constantly learning from your own preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets at doing the job for you. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire talent Fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility over at Indeed.com slash Travis. Just go to Indeed.com slash Travis right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed here on the podcast. Indeed.com slash Travis. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. I mean, you've worked with some major companies. I mean, Starbucks, Apple, you know, like big household names, you know, like companies that we, that we all know, how do you even begin to keep the brand consistent at that scale? You know, like when you're trying to communicate, some people sit down with, you know, just their personal brand Facebook page or with uh with one singular, you know, speech or something and try to keep this consistency. How do you do that at such a massive scale with some of these these larger companies? Well, the first answer is super boring. I think you have to be quite operational. Mm. I'm I'm a super operational leader, and it's it's sometimes not in the sexy things; it's in the little things. You know, the second is a humility to say I work for a phenomenal brand, and my job is not to innovate and make a name for myself. My job is to pay tribute to this brand and bring it to life the very best that I can in the context in which, you know, I find myself. So in the instance of Apple and Starbucks, I was bringing those brands to China. Well, there's always this globalization question. How much of it is maintaining the global image of the brand and how much is localizing to the market? And I think for big brands like this, we want to be humble and say, people are coming to the Apple store because it's the Apple store. They don't want to come to the Chinese Apple store. There are lots of those and a lot of them aren't real. They want the Apple store experience. So how do I distill the things that really make the Apple store the Apple store and hold really true to those? I remember having conversations because we're so specific about the way the brand is presented. There, you have to really have some data and really feel convicted about the things you wave your flag on that say China's different. One was the footfall. We have so many people in our stores, especially in the early days when we first opened retail, you would find people, you know, sometimes people would open a door and like previous customers will fall out because the store is literally that packed. So you realize you need, you need signage. You need very, this is not sexy marketing, but it is part of how we present the brand. And I think that that's another question is how do we define the word marketing these days? For me, it's about customer experience. So what is the customer's experience with the Apple brand? Falling out of my store is not a great customer experience. We're not accustomed to making wayfinding signage. 
because it's not very beautiful. And yet I need it to make sure my customers are safe and they understand the right way. And these doors just can't be opened anymore. <laughs> so we had to find ways to debate very, very small questions like what's the best wayfinding sign? How do we build those? We don't have any of those anywhere in the world, but we do need them here. And having those discussions, it's, it's a little surprising sometimes how much time you put into them, but that's how much we all care about the brand yeah. and making sure we represent the brand in print in case anyone photographs it. And it's put in media to the experience of the humans who are sort of um, blessing us with their interest to come into our store. Right. Yeah. That's such a valuable way to look at it because I think so many times the conversation stops at how do you get a lead or how do you get a customer or how do you bring someone to you? But the experience once you're there is something that most people don't think about, you know, and, and it's the reason that a lot of companies struggle is they don't think past the how do we get them here? What sale can we do? What What's this? like? And again, it's really interesting knowing your background, knowing your kind of history, like you've always cared about others' experiences. Like it started, that's what was kind of fueling the, the desire to get into medicine. And I want to have them to have a better experience with someone. I want them to be cared for the right way. And that seems like that's carried over into every single chapter moving forward. And that's, I think that's really neat to see. You You already leaned a little bit into the second part of this question, which is, you you have ran these companies over in China, these American-based companies, and taken them out into a different market. And again, my my question is, how do you take that kind of you know well-known brand, that established brand, and how do you contextualize it without sacrificing what makes that brand that brand? And you've answered this a little bit already, but when you were first tasked with this and you had to decide like, how much do I make this, like you said, the Chinese version of the Apple store, or how do I make this, you know, how do I tweak it enough to be culturally relevant while also maintaining the brand integrity? How did you first even go about <laughs> tackling that? Something simple. And I thought it was so insightful. What you just said, and this is why you're so good at what you do, I wrote down because you're right. I, I do care about others' experiences. I don't think I've ever articulated that so mm. succinctly, but that's the core. We often come into things as business leaders thinking, what is my business objective? What is my mission? Mm. What is my vision? What are my KPIs? Well, if I'm thinking about how many I want to sell or how I want to present my brand, what I'm focused on is inward versus who am I serving? And what experience do I want to give them? I think when we, we turn that vision outward, we want to, of course, tie it back to our own goals. But if we, if we put the focus on the person we're serving or the person who we think is going to be interested in us and how do we help them become aware, not so that I can sell them shit, but because I can interest them in something and I believe they'll be delighted at the end of it. And it's my job to make sure I understand that person, that I, that I can validate they will in fact be delighted by the thing because I'm not here to make a quick buck. And then I figure out how to engage them. And, and to your previous point, how do I create a seamless experience from online to offline, from the first moment they engage with me to the ongoing relationship that we hopefully build over time? Right. Yeah. It's the, it's kind of like this science of joy, you know, like how do you make that big brand very deeply personal? And that's where I think a, a brand like Apple really wins is that it has become a emotional thing, you know, like I, I remember, a. I remember a few years ago there was a there was a commercial and it was a it was a teenage boy on his phone and like distracted all through the Christmas season and it was a very it was a ton of views and hits on this video and basically it came at the end and he was filming this Christmas short for his family it was like this very powerful short saying like he looks disconnected but he's actually connecting really deeply and emotionally through the Apple product 
And I remember my family watching it during that time. And I was just saying like that kind of nailed what an ad should be. Like it communicated this experience for the customer. It goes beyond just like how many megapixels in a camera or, you know, what percentage discount it it's this very calculated, you know, kind of scientific way of like explaining how you're going to feel when you have that product in hand or when you go into one of these locations. And that is, like I said, it goes a lot deeper than just all of those stats. <laughs> it's this very specific. And I think it takes a person like you, who, like I said, is so concerned about what is that person's experience initially. I was kind of curious as well to, um, for, for a company that is obviously at a smaller scale, most of our listeners here are not running you know, at this scale, but they are trying to, within their own businesses, craft a perfect customer experience and they're trying to bring bring kind of a brand together that is meaningful to others where should someone start like where does someone start at the at the grassroots level maybe what are two or three things that you think people should really focus on we tend to jump straight into colors palettes and fonts i think we need to step back and say what's the legacy we want to leave behind what do we want to be you know, I think about Allbirds and how the brand started as, as an example, just off the top of my head. They wanted to stand for something first. There, there are so many clients that I have the opportunity to work with. I'm now on the agency side after over 20 years on the client side. And I find it so interesting because you get to see such a wider array of brands and companies and how they think about things. I'd say the one consistent point on all brands that stand for something and are doing well is they have a purpose. They articulate something that they want to be known for. And I don't think there's a single statement out there that says, I want to be known for the most sales, right? right. Or I want to grow market share. No, they say, I want to stand for this thing because it's it's to your previous observation. Um, people want to feel seen. They want to be heard. When they spend their hard-earned dollars on whatever product or service you're offering, they're affiliating themselves with you. They're mm -hmm. saying, I get you and I'm okay with you being seen as part of my life because I buy into your philosophy. When I carry an Apple phone, it's because I buy into Steve Jobs philosophy. I buy into this beautiful design, the experience and, and this brand, when I carry it, stands for a little bit of me. The brands that I wear, the purses I carry, the cars I drive, these are all representations of who I am, right? Whether I admit it or not, even if certain people buy things that are particularly unbranded, they're still making a statement, which is I don't want to be affiliated with a brand. So everybody's making a choice to invest in you because you help them make a statement about themselves. And you can't do that unless you know what you stand for. Yeah, no, absolutely. So as far as, as far as, well, actually I want to ask this question first because it came up while you were talking about it. You know, everybody, nobody wants to be known for the most sales or this. I'm kind of curious, what are you hoping to be known for? Like, what's the legacy that you want to leave behind personally? Well, legacy to me is an interesting word, you know, and I use that social legacy as part of this, this book. And to me, it's more than a book because um, it's, it's not about having this like printed thing that I get to <laughs> say I wrote. Legacy is leaving something better than you found it. It's pretty simple. I would like, my family has something we have over our fireplace. It's a super simple formula. It says contribute divided by consume is greater than one. Like we want to contribute more than we consume in our lives. And we, we just get this one life, like regardless of what you think happens after you die, it's this one life that we're all here. So how do I contribute something? How do I leave something behind that's meaningful and interesting and beneficial to other people? That, that's what I want to be known for. You, there are all these studies, right, that ask people on their deathbed, what do you most regret? And it's always, I didn't 
invest in the important moments. I didn't spend time on this. Like my, my super simple statement is I just want to die empty. When I go, I want to lie there with a deep sense of satisfaction saying, I don't have any money that I've hoarded. I don't look back and wish I had spent more time on X, Y, and Z. I don't wish I had more time with my daughter. I, I look back and I think, yeah, I gave everything I had to give. Like to me, that that's the feeling of a life well-lived. Right. No, that's really, that's really powerful. And, and before we switch the conversation into networking, uh, can you share a little bit about some of the efforts you've done to do just that, to live kind of an empty life, so to speak, which is an interesting way to say it. But, you know, you've, you've, like I said, you've, you've adopted many, many rescue animals. You've taken a lot of steps to really, uh, I mean, to open your home up to people that need it. Like, how have you taken steps really to, um, to kind of leave that legacy? I think it started one step at a time. And I wouldn't say that it was even intentional in the beginning, right? This, the subtitle of this book is incredibly unsexy because I'm, I'm, like I said, I'm operational. It's very practical. Like I wanna help people to find their social legacy, to live a more intentional life and lead with authentic purpose. And we went through this line multiple times. And finally I'm like, but that's really what I wanna do. (laughs) So that's what I'm gonna write, you know? (laughs) In the beginning, I just, I met a girl who maybe it was like that little girl in the children's hospital when I was playing music, who I just couldn't drive by. And I wouldn't even say I had the most positive intentions. I was tired. I was busy. The weather was awful. I wanted to go home. I was still a college student. I just couldn't get myself to drive by her. And so I just bought her dinner. And then God, I couldn't imagine seeing her going back out into that, you know, upstate New York sleet. So I just told her, you can crash on my couch. And that, you know, that night turned into a week, turned into a month. So if you had asked me, would you like see a battered homeless child on the side of the street and bring her into your home for months? I would have said, no, no, I wouldn't. I'm too busy. I have three jobs. I'm putting myself through college, but one small thing can actually unfurl into something much more. And then you actually start discovering I'm capable of a lot more than I think. And there's this, there's this magic in abundance when you're doing something additive, when you focus on the other person's experience, to use your words, you find that time opens itself up somehow. Whereas if we look at things with this, you know, it's like a growth versus fixed mindset to use common phrases. If you look at things with a fixed mindset, you think I don't have enough time for that. And then somehow like time and resource curls in on itself. But if you actually say, I'm going to make time for this thing, like it opens and then you find I have more energy and I have more time to do the things that I really want to do. I don't know how to explain it mathematically, but it is a true statement. So it's how I met Leah, that first girl. And then over time meeting other people and eventually it started to click, you know, I think this is kind of a weird thing because we have never gone out looking for these kids as a family. This is now, this is now family thing. It started off when I was just a 20 year old girl. I want to kind of transition. This kind of naturally takes us into this networking conversation because that's really the heartbeat of the show. And it seems to be the heartbeat of so much of your story. Um, And honestly, you may have answered this, this question throughout, but I'm really curious to know, do you believe that who you know or what you know is more important and why? I I know you've asked this so many times, so I don't know if anyone's answered it this way, but I thought about this question and I would say how you approach things is actually the most important. So how more than who or what? And the reason is what you know isn't that important. I'll hire, like at Apple, when we were doing recruiting events, the number one word that shows up first on our slides is interesting. We're looking for interesting people, right? So that's very much who versus what. We can teach the what, but I think the who you know is is really important. 
So if I had to pick between the two, I would say, I would say the who there's a phrase I heard somewhere and I don't know who I'm quoting, but we tend to be the average of the five people we spend the most time with. Right. So how do we surround ourselves with the best people, the most interesting, this phrase, iron sharpens iron. How do we surround ourselves? Not with people who make us feel good, but who want to improve us and help us be better. But I think even beyond the who and the what, like how you approach life, how you approach people, how you approach subject matters is still the most important because if you approach it humbly with a curiosity and an interest to learn and a deep desire to leave things better than you found them, I actually think that supersedes the the who and, and the what. What connection or what who had the biggest impact on the trajectory of your life? So many. And I think it's an important responsibility to maintain contact with them and stay in touch. So I mentioned Paris Watts Stanfield. We touched sort of that one time. And even after I joined Procter & Gamble, I worked there for 11 years. We didn't see each other often. I'm still in touch with her on social media. And when I make big changes, I still reach out and say, thank you. Because of you and that conversation I had when I was an MBA student, here's where I am. So I think all those little touch, sometimes it's not a deep, deep, long lasting relationship. It's a moment when somebody was incredibly generous with you and it changed everything. And then there are some people who are really deep mentors. So I have, I've had the benefit of a lot of mentors. And I think that is a core piece of networking is finding people who believe in you and who you can rely on to be a sounding board and to give you advice that you can't necessarily get in your direct work circle. Uh, Vivian is somebody I met. And and like of all the funny things, networks happen to me. I'm not an active networker. And I know this is something you talk about as well. I'm an organic networker. I love people and I love meeting people and having real conversations. And sometimes it's completely inadvertent. I was at Procter & Gamble in the lobby of these, you know, these twin towers in Cincinnati. And sometimes I would find people were really much nicer to me than I deserved because I was a nobody. And then when they were really nice to me, they would call me Vivian. <laughs> like there must be somebody in this company who looks like me and is maybe a higher level named Vivian. And one day I came across her because there aren't that many Asian women in marketing leadership. And her name is Vivian Bechtold, Asian woman, um, incredibly committed, passionate about everything that she does, has multiple kids, marketing director. I thought, oh, that's super interesting. And I, I reached out to her and I said, hey, I'm mistaken for you a lot. I wonder if I can just invite you to lunch and learn a little bit. You seem to have like the total package. You seem to be the kind of person I want to be more like. So we had lunch and she, and and I think, you know, in a mentoring relationship, it's important to not just sit down and be like, so tell me everything or ask really open-ended questions. Cause those are hard to answer and they're kind of annoying, but I went in with specific questions. Like, so, so how do you balance? How many kids do you have? How do you think about being a mom and being a, a, at work? Her husband's also an executive at Procter and Gamble. How do you guys trade off? Who goes home when the plumbing breaks? I was super curious and it helped us have a tangible relationship versus an awkward one. She became a mentor over time. And then her husband, Jim, is also a mentor, who's also a mentor to my husband. They're now the godparents of my daughter. Like wow. the, the Beckfolds are deep, deep relationships in our in our life. Like they, they're they're treasured. And godparents to me isn't just something you say and you send a gift now and then. Like they're they're in our will. If something mm-hmm. happens to me and Minky, they will take care of my daughter. So that relationship, like that trust runs super deep. And it all happened because people were randomly being nice and calling me Vivian in the lobby of Procter and Gamble 22 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. You you gave something that I think is really important and it's come up, it came up in an interview, maybe two or three interviews back 
and one of the one of the people gave that same thing like ask specific questions you know like it, it's so easy to sit in front of someone successful and say just tell me how you know it's like well there might be 40 or 50 years of how you know there might have been all these different paths like even in this you know 45 minute conversation like we're not going to tackle like the how like how did you do all of this we're going to get little snippets of it and i think when people go to to mentors to just know you have to be specific in what you're wanting them to help you accomplish or learn because there's so many that go and you know it's been talked about on the show before you're just giving them homework you know how can i best help eric do this or how can i best help with emily to do this or with this person to do this like how can i how can i step in and do that versus saying i'm about to do this what do you think i should do or hey i'm about to make this decision do you think that's a good idea or a bad idea. And starting there is going to give you a lot, one, a lot more meaningful answer, but two, it's going to help take some of that pressure off the mentor, the potential mentor, and make them more willing to help. And I, I'm so glad you specified that because I think that's really, really important for people to understand. Um, totally. I mean, if I can jump in on that, yeah. one other thing I'd say is people reach out all the time on LinkedIn. And I have a lot of, I think you've used this phrase before too. I have a lot of LinkedIn friends. My my daughter, when she was younger, used to call them mommy's internet friends. And I was like, honey, let's call it something else. <laughs> but they are. They're people I've gotten to know online over time. And we've developed some sort of like a mutual respect mm -hmm. or some, we've identified things that we believe philosophically that are, you know, that we have in common, which is wonderful. But what differentiates those people that I respond to and start building a relationship from all the people that I don't. And I never not want to respond to someone. Like, that's just not my nature. If somebody reaches out, I want to have a response, even if it's just a high back. But I'd say there are two differences. One is someone who's so overarching. I don't know if it's because they don't know what to ask mm. or if they're lazy and they just want to be like, you tell me. But those are the ones that even when I want to in my heart be generous, I don't know how to help. And I don't know how to respond. So a lot of times I don't. Like, like, can I, can I buy you a coffee and you can tell me about your success? I'm like, first of all, I'd really rather not talk about my success. I talk right. about how I can help you, but <laughs> I got a really interesting one the other day. It was like, I would like to buy you a hundred RMB Starbucks gift card. If you would spend 30 minutes with me, <laughs> I was like, are you like deliberately trying to buy my time? Those are hard, hard things because they feel self-focused yeah. versus relationship focused or contribution focused. So when I reach out to somebody, I would like to be, I would like to learn from you. And I will ask, would you be willing to share some time with me? And then I'll say specifically, here's what I'd like to learn. And then I would also always end with, and how can I be of service to you? And I, I mean it. It's not like words. I really, I believe all relationships are two ways. So if I get to be the mentee and you're the mentor, how can I benefit you? How can I bless you? Is there something I can teach you? Or is there something you'd like to learn about China or about my experiences or about writing a book or trying something new? There's always something that you can offer another person, but even expressing your willingness to share it, I think, makes them so much more open to creating a dialogue. So it doesn't feel like you're just trying to suck something from me and I don't even know how to give it to you. <laughs> Right, right. Yeah, it's it's the difference of, you know, it's not being a taker, you know, like, what can I get from you? And it's it's offering even, and look, at a certain point, when you're reaching up to someone high outside your, your network, the amount of value that they're going to give you is going to way outweigh potentially what you're going to be able to give to them, but find something. And uh, I'm curious when when you're thinking about because even now I'm sure you reach out to people where you're thinking, man, I hope that they respond and I hope that I can build that relationship. 
how do you kind of audit yourself to see where can I add value? What can I do to bring value to someone who really doesn't, I mean, you don't need Starbucks from somebody, you know, necessarily. Like that's not necessarily an incentive. You work for Starbucks. You could probably call the right person and get Starbucks if you wanted it. Um, but what's what's the best way to check yourself and say, hey, here's where I can add value to this person? I think uh, well, the first thing is to ask the open-ended question because sometimes you don't know. You know, I, I do have a couple people who are mentoring me now. And I also reached out and asked for somebody to coach me in my current job because I'm aware that I'm entering an industry I've never been in as a CEO. <laughs> so there's a lot of stuff I don't know. And this is every company says that they're a people oriented company. An agency is literally people. We don't sell a product. We don't sell, you know, right? We just, we are here to be a partner to our clients. So how do I do this job to the best of my ability and accelerate my learning curve so that my people suffer minimally for the things that I don't know? Right. So when I reach out, even to a coach, coaches have to be, even if you're paying them, they have to be specific on who they choose to invest their time in because their resource is limited. And so when I reached out to her, I asked the same questions that I would ask a potential mentor. I, I just said, um, these are the things I'm really looking for. These are the things I'm worried that I, I'm not versed enough in that I would love complimentary help. And if those are things you think you can add, that seems to be a good fit. Second, I would also like to be of service and I want this to be a beneficial thing to you because, you know, an executive coach isn't just doing it for the money, right? At that point in their career, and the, the, no. <laughs> they're not there for a couple hundred bucks. So I, I kind of asked, how are you growing yourself as a coach? What's useful to you? And for some people, maybe it is the name of the people they get to coach because then we become their future cases. Maybe it is the value of a relationship that's real. And I'd say that's what it is with Christabel, my coach. She wants, she enjoys a meaningful connection. She enjoys the sense that she's helping me. And so I try to pause and express gratitude and then go back and demonstrate how I have applied the things that the, the wisdom that she's given me. And I think, I think I, I'll, have, I'll have to ask her, I'm meeting her next week. I think that's the gratification she gets more than anything else is watching me grow and watching me maybe avoid some minefields because of the help that she's giving me. So everybody is um, rewarded differently. But I think it's it's upon the mentee to identify what does that reward look like for you and how can I make sure that you're getting something out of this relationship that's important. Right, that's super viable. And you, and you brought so much practical advice, both from just the personal development level to, you know, branding, you know, to, to being able to, to grow your company and your business. And I, I really do appreciate that. I want to transition us into our random round. We love ending each episode with these quick random questions with quick random answers. First off, I'm curious, uh, what profession other than your own do you think it would be fun to attempt? To be an inventor. I don't know what I'd invent, but I think that'd be really fun. <laughs> it seems like it's funny because we've been watching a lot of old Disney movies on Disney Plus with my with my daughter. And I'm like, if you're watching these, it seems like inventor was like nine out of 10 people's career path. <laughs> it's like everybody was like, had hats with propellers and rocket boots. It seemed like that was the, one of the obvious choices, but that's, that's awesome. Uh, if, if you could sit on a park bench with anybody talking about mentors, uh, if you could sit on the park bench with anybody past or present and talk to them for an hour, who would it be and why? Nelson Mandela. Because I think he's a person who lived humbly and made such an incredible amplified difference in the world. He's left it so much exponentially better than he found it. And he, it wasn't an easy road. I'd, I'd like to hear about it. What's the first question you'd ask? Did you ever have a moment when you wanted to just give up? Hmm. Well, 
what's what's your favorite way to learn? Is it books, blogs, podcasts? What's your favorite way to consume information? Oh, those are two different things to me. The, my favorite mm-hmm. way to learn is by doing. I, and I'm not afraid of failure. I like to try, but that's the best way for me to build something into my muscle, including my brain. And then the best way to consume information is podcasts at 1.5 speed. <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, no, that's, that's really good. Um, give us a glimpse of your morning routine. I wake up, oh, agency life is fun because everything starts later. So I wake up dramatically later now, which is wonderful. My whole life has shifted like almost to a different time zone. But I wake up at about 6.45 and then I go downstairs. We have a little room that we turn into a workout room. So there is no excuse. I work out, then I see my daughter. I shower and we head out the door around the same time. She goes to school and I go to work. And then I'm in the car for over an hour because I live pretty far from work so that she can walk to school, which is not a bad thing because it gives me a chance to lean into the day and get started on a, on a singular basis, which is really good because as soon as I get to work, I'm with people all day and I feel ready for it. Right, right. Uh, what's your go-to pump-up song when you're driving for this hour? I know you're probably consuming a lot of podcasts at 1.5 speed, <laughs> but uh, what are? do you ever put on a, a pump-up song or just a go-to song to get you in the mood for the day? Yeah, I'm going to be honest. It's embarrassing. Cake by the ocean. <laughs> That's a good. That's a good go-to option to get to get hyped on the way on the way in. What are you not very good at? Baking. I'm terrible at baking. It's frustrating because it's a set recipe, right? <laughs> and yet, right. I think, I think I'm not very precise. Or like, I I look at something and maybe I make assumptions. Like, do you really need to sift the flour before you just pour it? Right. Apparently, all of those little things you really need to do. So maybe I'm not the most meticulous. I'm probably more creative and like to head in a direction and baking does not suit that. (laughs) Gotcha. Gotcha. What's one place online where people can connect with you? Uh, Any social media site? Obviously they can check out a copy of your book. We've got a link in the show notes, but where's probably the best place for people to, to stay in touch with you? The easiest way is I built a personal website. So it's social-legacy.com. You can also connect through all socials at The Spare Room Book. And then I think primarily where I meet great people like yourself is LinkedIn. And my LinkedIn ID is just Emily Chang 8621 Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing so much knowledge. Like I said, there was a lot of really great information for both the personal level and for those that are you know, running businesses and trying to maintain brands and on their own. And uh, I really appreciate you sharing so much knowledge with us over these last few minutes. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's it for this episode. If you want to connect with Travis and other like-minded people who also listen to the show, then you're going to want to head over to travischapelcom slash group to join his free Facebook group, Podcast to Profit. Travis will see you there. And remember to leave every relationship better than you found it. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. 
Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.